Hey everybody, my name is Alex and this is Lunchbox Radio. Now before we get started, I just want to thank everybody who listened to the previous episodes. If you haven't listened to the previous episodes, um, you can go check them out on whatever you're using to listen to me right now. Um, you can also subscribe and review there, which would be really nice. But um, just to give you an idea, you can listen to the two most recent episodes, which were a exploration of... Violence is fantasy in anime, which stemmed from, which is the last Sunday edition, which will be the episode immediately before this one in whatever podcast feed you're using. Um, And that really stemmed from the assassination of former Prime Minister um, Shinzo Abe and the fact that Japan is comparatively a very safe country especially when you, like, hold it up to other countries in the world. I mean, sure, there's still scams and stuff, but the, like, the raw violence that happens in something like America is largely unimaginable there. And that's just an exploration of, like, the kind of hyper-violence that anime can imagine and why that feels so different in anime than it does in say, American media, or even media from anywhere in the world. Um, But you can also go check out my episode on Love Hina, which was inspired by another political event in Japan, um, the election of Ken Akamatsu to the Japanese government, which I find wild and amazing, kind of. But definitely go check out both of those episodes. But what we're going to be talking about here today is a little film that came out... Um, last Friday, actually, I think, and is a film known as The Deer King. We can all be blinded by our fear and hatred. This land is plagued by a disease called the Mitsuwa. It's spread by Osam dogs. I'm a survivor once again. Dada, I found you. It's you. Allow me to accompany you. You said you want my blood. What for? Your blood was able to defeat the Mitsuo, and that makes it a very powerful weapon in this fight. Found you. Come, find me. Dada? The child. She's an orphan from a nearby village. But there are things more important than blood. Without her, I'd be lost. Why do you fight it? Just give in. I want to see her grow. I want to keep watching over her. Only the chosen ones can survive the disease. That does not justify giving up. It isn't fighting against destiny how we've managed to survive this long. So I must continue to resist. Now, one of the things that I think is the most interesting about the Deer King is something that I don't 
focus on a lot in the in these episodes where I talk about specific things, the, the third day editions, if you will. And part of that is because there are tons of people who can do it way more better, way more better, way better than I can. And there are tons of people who have been doing, who have been looking into this stuff in depth in a way that I feel isn't my best strength. So generally I don't. And I, if you've ever come to see any of my actual anime panels that I do in person, which I haven't done for a couple of years because, you know, mega death has been in the air, but I really focus on things that I can read into things based on my own experience. And facts and figures, I probably know if you like pressed into my brain, like voice actors and directors and stuff, but I don't. I don't excel in getting them out of my brain. So I'm going to look at a lot of that actually for this, um, for this conversation about this movie, about this film rather, because it's so much of what this movie is. And I think it's important that if A, be recognized, but B, it's, It's being used in to it's like all this stuff being used to demonstrate a different thing than it originally was, but also a little bit of the same stuff that it was originally like used to demonstrate. But I want to be really clear: I don't think you need any of what any of the knowledge that I'm about to give you to go see this to go see this film. You can just go see it. It's still a delightful thing, and it will probably be one of those things that people look at and they're like, oh, I should have gone and see that. And somebody else will look at it like, oh, I saw that and you didn't. Um, and that's true of lots of anime movies, but I think it'll be pretty true of this one by like once it's out of theaters, which will probably be fairly quickly. But um, so the Deer King is a product of kind of a, a mixture of a couple things. And the mixture of a couple things that I'm gonna say is it's part Princess Mononoke, part Lone Wolf and Cub, part um, Ocarina of Time, and part like Japanese I knew history feeling thing and I know that all sounds very strange and we'll get to why um but also it is it was produced by production IG it's produced with people who worked on Princess Mononoke and that DNA is visually is very much there and one of the most striking things that you kind of see here is that this visual, that like the visual cues of something like Princess Mononoke, the the like treatments of stuff from Princess Mononoke there, but also this little, there's little visual moments from things like Ocarina of Time. There's little visual moments from things like that feel kind of like Lone Wolf and Cub. There's a like a sprinkling of a feeling of even something like Wolf Rain in this. And if you've seen this, if you've seen this 
film already, you're like it's flashing in your head as I say all those things. You're like, oh, he's right, holy shit. But if you haven't, this is where I'm going to get into the plot of this film. So the film opens up with this like panning over the over this forest, and it talks about the deer king and the wolf and and the dog king. And then it focuses in on this doctor who is coming to visit this 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 mine, in which all the miners are prisoners and they're all dying of something, and you don't know what. Eventually, you come to find out that they are dying of this mysterious disease called the Mitsua. Called called, called the Mitsua, rather, and this disease goes after. And this, in later in the plot, you find out that this disease goes after a particular set of people, seemingly for no reason, no reason other than vindictiveness. And it is employed by this character who is of like a different race, who is known as the Dog King, and he deploys it against these attackers and against this other, this like force of another people. And the doctor character whose name I forget, um, he's the only one whose name I full on forget. Um, the, the doctor, Dr. Hosel, is trying to get everybody to understand that this, this isn't a curse. It's not like a curse that can be inflicted on people. It is a disease and it's affecting you for some key reason. And they give little hints eventually as to what the hell is the problem with the people who are susceptible to this disease. And the entire time that it's like political machinations going, going on that are... But that are like this king who is you led to believe like a king or like he was not the person who took over this massive land but he is the person who he's like the latest inheritor of it um and then there's his prince um a uh, character named Prince Yotol and I believe the king is um named Shikan but it's the Prince is trying to do his best for his dad. And they have in their service the um, king of... The current king, at least, of the Aquafa, which is the, like... Which is the Native American... Which is the equivalent to, like, the native population of this area. And you find out later that the Aquafa... That, like, the Aquafa king and his general are employing the, are telling the dog king, who is also, they call him Aquafanese, um, to deploy the Mitsua against his, against, against their enemies who are the, like the king and the prince and all that stuff. And they know it will work, and they know they're not affected by it. But they all take it as this like, 
God-given right that the aquaf that aquafanes are not affected by the Mitsua. Which is essentially like a plate. Think about the kind of goop that dra- that grabs Ashitaka in the beginning of um Princess Monoki. Imagine a kind of like mystification of that that is surrounding a pack of wild of wild wolves that just straight up attack people. And if they bite you, you're gonna get the Mitsuwa. It's gonna be bad. You're gonna get giant purple block, purple, much like Ashita- on Ashitaka's arm, but a single color instead of two tone. Blotch it all over your body, and then you're gonna die. And you, and so you you kind of walk into this whole thing. And in this scenario, um, Holsoul, when he's there to inspect the prison, he's there to figure out what the, the prison mine, he's there to figure out what the fuck is going on. A tracker who's there with the aqua, for the um, aqua for the, for the aqua for general figures out that, oh, hey, somebody escaped. Like, we don't know how, we don't know why, but somebody escaped. And the tracker is named Say, and she comes in as like a side character, as an important supporting character later. And so Say is like, somebody escaped, here's what happened, here's what, here's the deal, like here's how I know all this stuff. As a, it's a great kind of like, showing of her as a tracker and like attaching that concept to that character pretty brilliantly, actually. And so Holsel at this point, Holsel and his assistant, who's a big, glorious, dumb, awesome himbo of a man, are like, we've got to find this guy. He, he clearly survived some amount of time. If we get to him, we can use his blood to create, essentially, a vaccine against the Mitsua and fight it in other people. And Hosel is on the right track here, and you can instantly tell. Like, Hosel is um, it described as a doctor, and he is a man of medicine, and he understands that, like, this, this, these curses don't exist. Like, you think they do, but they don't. There's a reason people are getting sick after they're bit by these dogs, and I don't know what's happening here. And all this, like, other bullshit is centered on this. So if I figure out this, it will solve a whole bunch of other problems. And he's very clear about that. And he's straight up, it's like, he, he doesn't quite go to, like, these fucking country hicks, but he gets pretty close. And you can feel his frustration with all of these people because they just they believe that this is a curse they don't understand the concept of a pandemic disease and 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 that and that includes the aquafanese the aquafanese who aren't affected by it they believe that it's like a divine thing they can wield and that they they won't be affected by it in the last third of the movie, you find out that that's bullshit, and you're like, oh, oh, and by then, 
you are very aware, if you've been paying attention, what the fuck is the dividing line factor. And when you find out that Aquafinite can be affected by the Mitsuha, you are instantly like shown, oh, and this is why they can't, and this is why the ones who aren't, aren't. So, the kind of like the main character, the, the, the main focus character is a character named Van. And Van is this big bulky guy. He's... He is very clear. He's identifiable as being Aquafanese. He was a captain in this um, group of mercenaries who fought for the Aquafanese back when, like, it was it was war times, and the other and the other class of people were coming for their land, called the Lone Antlers. And these guys were like all killer, no filler kind of badasses, and. He was kind of content being a prisoner. Until his daughter, his like adopted daughter, Yuna, came into the picture. And he escaped when he got a chance, and he's caring for Yuna. Who is this little girl who is like, just kind of an adorable little girl for the most part. And he rides this big deer. And I forget what they call the deers in the dub, but it's like it's like the Japanese word for deer. And everybody's amazed because nobody can figure out how to tame the deer. And eventually, he ends up at this village, which w- that was trying to raise these deer to be to sell them to the army of the not the bad guys, but the conquering force, because the lone antlers rode these deer, and then they were such a it was so difficult to beat them. Partially because they rode these deer that had giant spikes on their head, that they, that the army of like the the emperor's army essentially, kind of wants to implement that and kind of want to make that happen for themselves, but they can't. And everybody's like, how to train the deer, how to tame the deer has become a lost, a kind of lost. Um, knowledge to the Aquafanese and the Emperor's people and all that stuff and all that stuff Um, but the um, the the, the Empire of Zol actually is the the Empire's name so the, the Zolian people have lost a lot of their if they ever had it they could have come from somewhere else in this in this um, narrative the knowledge of how to tame these animals and so eventually Van shows the aqua the, 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 this very mixed race village where like the where like one of the couples the um, wife is Zolian and the husband is Aquafanese. How to do this? How to how to tame these wild deer, and how to raise them? And eventually, you get to a point where there's 
a moment where they drink where where the little girl you know drinks deer milk and everybody's like what 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 you you can drink that and one of the old Aquafinesian like elders is like oh I remember when we did that that that's a fun time and Van gives him this look like wait the the Zolian people don't do this and he's like no they believe and this was a this was a not uncommon belief um like a not uncommon way beliefs would go in like ancient and medieval time it's something along this kind of logic if you drink if you drink a beast that will make you equal to milk of a beast that will make you equal to a beast without the understanding that there is no other kind of milk like milk has to come from mammals so unless you're drinking human lady milk it's not gonna go well for you like it's the only way that can go is like you got cows you got other mammals you got human women zit zit and that's the first like hint you get at the biological difference between the Zolian people and the Aquafinese. And the reason that the Zolian people get this disease and die, and the Aquafinese maybe get the, some version of the disease, but don't get it. But if they get it at all, it's not a death sentence. It's like, oh, they got bitten by the, by the dogs again, dumb kids. Like, they're going to be out of school for, like, two weeks or something. It's not it's not a, a dire thing for the Aquafinese if they get this at all. Which, generally, they don't. And so, there you have kind of the introduction of the answer to the, to the Mitsua. But also, you have the answer to the Mitsua in van and eventually dr holsel meets up with van and through a bunch of things say is sent to find van and kill him because you re because the general who's running this whole scan who's running this whole treachery was that was the one who was at the prison with dr holsel and it's like if we don't catch this van guy, there's a solution to the, to the Mitsua, therefore a solution to my, like, secret plan of attack. And he, that can't be. So I need somebody, I need this guy dead. And through a bunch of, like, recognitions of just everybody's human, Say doesn't kill Van. And Van, and Yuna eventually gets kidnapped by the dogs. Because Yuna is seen as being capable of becoming the new queen, the, the dog queen. And there's like a whole mystical story. There's a whole real mystical story here, but it's not... That is separate, but related to the story about a fatherhood, which is what... um. Van and Yuna's kind of journey is is like Van is Van eventually self-identifies as Yuna's adopted father 
And Yuna immediately is like, oh, you're my dad. That, that's why I hang out with you. But it takes Van a while to get there. And once he's there, he's like, oh, yeah. I'm never leaving. Like, if I, if I can afford to, I'm never leaving this kid. And... The blend of all of this stuff and all of this awareness feels very much like something like Princess Mononoke. And then you get to this big, beautiful tree where all the gun... Well, not the gun. Where all the dogs hang out who are, like, being employed by the Dog King, who is this really spiteful, aquaphanese... Who's a very spiteful, aquaphanesian, like, like, royal court member, almost, who just wants the Empire of Zol wiped off the face of the earth. He just wants them gone. He wants them to pay for their crimes. And in his defense, the Empire of Zol is pretty aggressive. Like, the, the Zolian king is not... The Zolian... The, Zol, the, Empire, the actual king, the, like, emperor, is not really a good guy. He's not... He's, but he's, like... He is a product of his time and of the scenario that made him, but he's not, like, everyone wants to believe that, like, he's this paragon of something, and he's really not. He's just not. He's, a he's like a, he's like the fifth king or something. He's like something in the succession line, and the thing that made him the way he is started a while ago. And the result of that is like you have somebody who's just spitefully out for revenge and has this great power that he can use to exact revenge, which is the dogs that can that can bite people and cause them to be afflicted with the Mitsua. And then you have this this constantly moving forward occupying force that is full on um, manifest destiny everything in one direction and you feel and like the whole in the way that the setting of Princess Mononoke feels unstable and also in the way that the setting of the of um, Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time feels unstable. This show, this film setting does not feel like a stable solved thing. It does not feel like it won't move at any moment. And kind of the best way they, the film does this is with this, these little cues because they have this thing called the Visit of the Emperor's Gaze. And it's essentially this big... It's a big podium thing that is dragged by a giant balloon, giant hot air balloon, essentially. And every time it approaches, it, it, like, it's going through the landscape, every time it approaches, like, a mountain or, like, a mountain column, they just pick them in mountain column, which are very clearly, like, created by the Aquafanese as, like, a way to bottleneck um, potential intruders, they straight up line the thing with explosives and blow it to the ground 
like dynamite it to the ground like you would a side of a mountain if you want to put a road through it. And so occasionally you'll get a cutaway to like just this landmass just falling into itself and that's how you know like the emperor's eye is moving in a really, in a really destructive and like aggressive way. This is pretty similar to the, like, straight-up fights they have in the forest um, in Princess Mononoke where they're straight-up, like, fucking, we all got, we all got pole-armed guns, and we're all gonna shoot these wolves off the side of this cliff. And the, this, and actually this move, this, this film is much more to the point with that than Princess Monoki is because a lot of the like a lot of the explanation of the climate of the world of Princess Monoki is told to you and not shown to you. Like the the when you encounter the 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 ape tribe in Princess Monoki, they're straight up like pissed and they're also trying to replant the mountain because they keep burning down the forest to mine the ore under it. Um, you see the samurai. You encounter the samurai. And then you also get the... And I played this for the, um, for the third day episode before the Lumping episode. The one all about the Supreme Court fucking nonsense. Um, you get that speech from um, Bully Bob Thornton's character about this old village that is decimated that's within the middle of the woods that he meets Ashitaka in that he um ultimately had dinner with Ashitaka in here you get this marker of these pillars that were intentionally created by not necessarily just nature but nature and then probably utilized by the Aquafanese to like protect themselves to like keep their village out of the fucking line of fire and you get an occupying force that is straight up like this is in the way blow it the fuck up and that's a marker of like them marching towards the kind of climax of this film and so you have most of the movie which is about Van Say and Dr. Holsel and his and his assistant um for a large part part of it going to font like looking for Yuna. And eventually Say like it's like uh gets in our head of like, oh, I've been doing the wrong bullshit. I've been working for the wrong fucking person here. The Aquafanese Ian like shitty general can go fuck himself. I'm just gonna tell Van where his kid is because he deserves it and like nobody deserves nobody deserves not just to lose their kid but you find out in the you find out in the um story that Van lost his entire family and like Yuna is his second shot and it's, it's currently not going very well so she's just like I'm gonna do these two a solid get them reunited get this taken care of and she tells him where the Oxfinite where the Aquafanidian village is, and where she and where she knows because she knows what the like background here. Yuna is 
because Yuna had been selected by the dogs to be the new king. Or new, or new dog king, or dog queen, rather. And... What you see in Van this entire time is this weird, like, magical ability that Hoful sees. And what that ends up being is that Van was selected by the Mitsua to be the next Dog King. And up until the very end of the movie, you don't understand what the afraid deer king is meant to aim at except for that Van seems to know how to train the deer and I, the deer they call are Suica so they like when they're talking about the deer milk they're call, talking about Suica milk and push come to shove the like, the like old king's energy takes over Yuna, Yuna's body, and Yuna, like, gets this crazed fucking nightmare look in her eyes, and, like, has this creepy fucking smile, because this is, like, a decade-long attempt at revenge for bullshit that nobody alive had much of anything to do with. They're just all living in the consequences of it. And when Van refuses to be the, like, apparatus of that bullshit the creepy old man is just like fine you don't want to do it I got another one got another one in the right wing and at that point you find out that like um not only was Van bitten, bitten by the dog but Yuna was too and she becomes the dog queen and like leads the dogs to kind of like become the puppet body that leads the dogs to to like go chop off the head of the emperor kind of thing of the emperor of Zol uh, the emperor of the empire of Zol which should tell you all you need to know about that bullshit um, but that's ultimately stopped and Van is like how do I save this kid because at this point it's become full like I'm her dad this is why it was, like I need to do this because I'm her dad and he agrees to lead the dog. He like agrees to lead the dog, takes the dogs away, and then there's a gap. There's like a time jump, and it's made clear before the time jumps that Say is very clearly intending to be Yuna's mother figure. And later on, after the time jump, and after like Hosel has decided to stay with the Oxfanes and study. Like, what the deal is here, like, the Suica milk, the deer milk that the Oxfanese have drank for generations has clearly still given them immunity to this thing. So he's using that to develop, like, an immunity, like, a vaccine that can eliminate this as a problem. Full-on COVID style, basically. And... You, in the middle of the movie, in like the middle, like peaceful section of the movie, when Van is hanging out at the village, he promises Yuna that he'll he will carve her a deer whistle. This is how you summon a suica. This is how you summon one of the deers to try and train. And so he 
borrows Say's knife at some point. He carves her a traditional whistle, and you he- and they make sure that you hear the sound because Holson's like, I'm just curious what what that thing sounds like, and you hear it, and Holson's like, this is very specific, and I'm not a fan. <laughs> and Ben just laughs at him and is like, Yeah, nobody is, but it, it's very specific, and it has a purpose to fuck you. <laughs> it's for my kid. I promised. Can't break a dad promise. It makes me a shitty dad. And the... You get this beautiful scene where... And it's suggested probably that Van had died at that point. But you get this beautiful scene where... A much older Yuna is riding with Say. And they pause for a second... And just over the hill, she sees the tail of one of the many wolves, the main, one of the many black wolves that make up the that made up the like Mitsuwa wolf pack thing. And she takes out this whistle and blows it. And Van's Suika, which had the name, it's Ohara, comes over the hill and just looks at her. And it's this beautiful, really touching, like, moment when she's like, oh. It's a piece of closure for her when she is old enough to understand it. When she's, like, not five, when she's maybe ten going on eleven or nine going on ten. And when she blows the whistle, all of the characters who knew Van kind of hear that tone and they just kind of smile to themselves. And that was probably the moment when I was like I'm really glad I saw this. This is really touching. It has so much to do with other stuff. It's pulling from, it's like I said it's like it's like a third lone wolf and cub a third um, Prismanoki and a third um, Ocarina of Time. And what the reason why I'm saying Ocarina of Time is because the place where the wolves hung out before they became a wandering pack um, by the end of the movie was this big old tree that as soon as its purpose had expired just shriveled and died. Deku tree style. Like immediate Deku Tree style. Big Deku Tree energy there. And I saw a video about Japanese style. And what I mean by Japanese style, I mean Japanese fashion. And what the what the person said I think is not in super entirely true, but is pretty accurate. If he said the reason why Japanese people dress so well is because, and I promise to sell the point, is because they are playing with the pieces on the board, so to speak. They are interpreting what is already there. Japanese fashion is much more rooted in collectiv- collectivism, um, a set of rules, and what is accessible for whatever your place is in society. 
one way or another. It is much less about trends and, like, coolness. And in a way that creates its own coolness and has created its own coolness, clearly. But what you... And what the footage that went along with this YouTube video showed was, like, a remixing of 1950s style, a remixing of, like, 70s style, remixing of early 2000s hip-hop. And, like, adding slight twists on it to make it feel more contemporary, but it's much more about remixing and interpretation than coming up with a whole new thing. Oh, and what that strikes me as in terms of like anime and in terms of this film certainly, this film is much less concerned about showing you things that you've never seen before than showing you then building something meaningful with things that you know that that you will recognize. I think that's valuable. I think it's valuable to understand we don't need to make something new to make something impactful. We You don't need to reinvent the wheel every time. You don't need to make You don't need to make a big splash. Sometimes you just need to make a ripple that will meet that will meet people where they are. And that's really what this movie did. It was really thoughtful. It was really beautiful. It but it also felt like things that have been thoughtful in the same way and beautiful in the same way. And it was using those building blocks to make something new. And I... So I talked about Mary and the Witch's Flower a long time ago. You can find it in the, um, in the feed of this podcast. And this is probably where I will end this. But Mary, Mary and the Witch's Flower was really interesting because it was... Um, get the studio's name. Um, let me look it up here. But it came out kind of like in the morass of... It came out not necessarily in the morass of, like, stuff like Harry Potter, but it was definitely enabled by Harry Potter. And it was not super well-received, but it was... Like, I, I went to see it. I actually, um... I went... I went to see it. Lot, lots of people went to see it. I, have a, I think I have a premiere ticket from it. But it was done by Studio Ponuk. And Studio Ponuk had split off from Studio Ghibli. And this was a... And I think Mary and the Wish Flower was based on a book. But it felt like them trying to take a big swing. And because it was so clearly them trying to take a big swing, it felt a little bit like a swing and a miss. Whereas this film feels like a solid, down-the-center hit. And because nobody thought about it, they let the ball roll out into, into, into the field. And now there's a player on third base. He couldn't make it to home, 
but it's still going to score a point. Um, to make a baseball metaphor that I stumbled into there, honestly. Um, but on that note, if you like this podcast, new episodes of this podcast come out every Thursday and every other Sunday. Thursday is more like this. It's more of me talking about a specific show or property. Every once in a while, I'll do a live-action movie or a live-action show. Um, and that's the usual thing for the Thursday show. And so every other Sunday is what I call the Sunday edition. And that is more metatextual, more about fandom, more about ideas in, in, the, in the medium of anime and the industry and all that stuff. So, if you like this show, definitely go subscribe and whatever you're using to listen to it right now and leave a five-star review. That really helps the show. Um, but until then, I've been Alex. This has been Lunchbox Radio. I will talk to you next Thursday. あちゃん見つけた。あの子にもっといろんなものを見せてやりたい。世界を侵食する謎の病。皇帝を持つのは孤独な戦士と一人の少女だけ。